Hello, welcome to the Theology Pugcast. This is C.R. Wiley, and we are pugcasting from an undisclosed location somewhere in the Northern Hemisphere. And we uh, don't have one of our members with us today. Dr. Glenn Sunshine chickened out because the subject of the day is just too <laughs> controversial for him. Actually, no, I'm having a little fun. Glenn is on a trip. He's uh, doing some things that are important, and uh, we'll let him uh, talk about those things when he gets back. We don't want to steal his thunder. But anyway, getting back to the point, we're at an undisclosed location. We're not at the corner pub. And uh, we're not going to tell you where we are. <laughs> we could be in, we could be in, in I don't know, Tokyo. <laughs> Probably from the music that you hear playing, you know that we're not in Tokyo. But, <laughs> ha-ha, we're going to keep you in the dark. And as we talk about the subject of the day, you'll, you'll understand why. But uh, we are joined by uh, Racer X. Hey, everybody. <laughs> yes, Racer X is with us today. And Racer X uh, is not going to uh, have his name uh, known on the show today. And, and as we get into the subject of the day, you'll see, you'll see why, you'll understand, I think, and you'll sympathize. But uh, Racer X, the name Racer X, by the way, that's my, that's my moniker. <laughs> And uh, the reason is because I was a big fan of Speed Racer back in the day. When I was a kid, this is before the, the movie, the film, you know. Yeah. The film was based on the, on the cartoon that I used to watch as a kid. When I was a kid back in the 60s and 70s, I'd rush home, you know, after school, and I'd watch a certain number of cartoons that were, that were strategically timed to be on when, when boys like me were, were in front of the television. And uh, Speed Racer. Now, Speed Racers was, was great for lots of reasons. One of the reasons was it was originally, you know, a Japanese cartoon. So the, the, the voices and the mouths never synced. That was always thought of fun. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I, I love Speed, Ra Speed Racer and the Mach 5. And Speed Racer, the, the, the hero of the show, uh, that was his name. Speed was his first name, and Racer was his last name. So are you saying that I'm, I'm the hero of the show? No, actually, <laughs> actually, you're the brother of the hero of the show. Ah. Racer X. Racer X. See, yeah. See, what would happen with Racer X is Racer X would come in at the at the last moment and save the day when when Speed was about to die. Suddenly, Racer and Racer X actually had a costume with a big X on his face. <laughs> and he would come in and save the day. He was Speed's brother that Speed thought was dead. Had died in a car crash years before. And, and he never told anybody that he was still alive. He would just come in and at that critical moment save the day. Pull Speed Racer from the volcano's mouth. From the shark's mouth. All kinds of great things in the show. You are... Racer X. Awesome. I have a little add on that, but I'll give it in a minute. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. Oh, and by the way, uh, we are joined today by uh, one of our regulars, Tom Price. Tom, introduce yourself. Tom is Tom Price is, is here um, in the underground, <laughs> in the bunker, in the bunker, in the bunker, and uh, I'm a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary and. The Racer X I grew up with was a heavy metal band out Ooh. of Los Angeles. Um, uh, I, I remember still Paul, cool, still, still cool. cool. Uh, probably <laughs> they're still around. These guys, they still play. According, my brother still listens to heavy metal, so I'm not going to say more than that. And he's my age. So. That's right. But I, I live in 1978, so I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah. So, but these guys were lightning fast virtuosos. And they would harmonize, but it's very similar. One would just start, it would speed racing on the guitar. The other would come in and start to harmonize with them. And cool. um, phenomenal, phenomenal uh, speed guitar playing. Let's yeah, just right. put it there. Yeah, all right. And, and you're a guitar guy. I'm a guitarist, and so that was big in, in those days. So. You know, we all let people know this. I don't think that most of our listening audience knows that your your undergraduate work was in music, yep. right? Yeah, classical jazz guitar. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I want to get back into it one of these days. Yeah, cool. I got a mandolin at the house, too. So. All right, all right. So, anyway, that's a little 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 side note, but uh, <laughs> but our topic today yeah. um, is, is definitely one that it's, it, you know, you know, it is Christmas. It's a time of, uh, you know, beauty and joy for those of us who uh, celebrate the Incarnation. Um, but it's also a time of, of remembering the Scrooges yes. that have impacted our lives and, and culture. 
those we need to both pray for but also resist as Christians. That's right. And resist. 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 We are the resistance. We the are the real resistance movement. <laughs> and so but, uh, maybe we'll pass it to Chris to kind of fill us in on what the yeah, topic the, of the day is. Yeah, and, uh, the topic of the day. So we're, <laughs> we're conservatives here. And we know that we've got, we walk around with little signs on our back that say, kick me, you know, in the academy. And uh, while people may be sort of, uh, you know, uh, presentable and even uh, follow the requirements of good decorum to our faces, we know that behind our backs, things are said, things are done. And uh, we, we, we live sort of, you know, in this, this environment where, you know, I think that many of us are like Damocles, you know, we've got that sword hanging over our heads that's held by the, by the, the thread, knowing, and we know that one misstep and boom, that sword could come, you know, falling down on top of us and end our lives professionally. And so this is a reality that conservatives in the academy deal with on a regular basis. Now, Tom and I, you know, I, I taught for, for years, uh, but I taught in a, uh, an institution that was a, you know, a, a, I know a, a Christian college, member of the Christian College Coalition. I taught philosophy. And uh, so, you know, I was in a, in, a, in a friendly environment. But nevertheless, you know, I, I, in my, my sojourn, I have, you know, spent time in other institutions and have some things to share about that. So uh, I thought maybe to kind of get going, uh, I could think, I could reminisce a little bit, and, and Tom, you could reminisce a little yeah. bit about what it's like to be a conservative in the academy. And then Racer X can kind of bring us up to speed on what it's like today as a graduate student in an undisclosed program, in an undisclosed school, in an undisclosed location with his undisclosed identity. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're all laughing about this, but it's just serious. Yep. There, are, there, are, there are things that could happen to, a, to you that could ruin your, your prospects, you know, and it is com they're completely out of, out of your hands. And yep. you, you could find yourself the target of the vitriol of the left uh, quite innocently and, you know, just speaking your mind, uh, you know, concerning something that Christians for time out of mind have believed. Anyway, so let me begin with, with my own experiences, I, uh, and then we could go to you, Tom. I remember when I lived in Cambridge back in the 90s, uh, you know, I was, I, was uh, I, I lived in, and worked in Central Square, which is right, way, right halfway between Harvard and MIT. So you're talking about, you know, sort of ground zero of liberalism mm -hmm. in the United States. You know, you go down, the uh, street to the to the south toward toward mm -hmm. Boston before you get to the Harvard Bridge you got MIT mm -hmm. you know the stem world but uh, then you go in the other direction you know up north toward North Cambridge uh, you get to Harvard Square and you go to Harvard hmm. so I lived in that environment for about a decade and early on when I was uh, and, and some of the listeners I think know about my 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 sojourn in uh, you know, sort of progressive thought. Uh, but early on, in, during that my time there, I was during that whole time there, I was involved with urban ministry and uh, providing education, uh, helping uh, institutions in Boston, places like Eastern Nazarene College or Gordon College or, or even Gordon Conwell Seminary, yeah. uh, connect with people in the city. And uh, I worked with different institutions there. And early on. You know, I, I flirted with Marxism. Sure. I, I had, uh, I was a card-carrying Marx a member of the Marxist Center for Education <laughs> uh, at the Cambridge Center for Marxist Education. It's a was, little different than the atheistic humanist society, <laughs> but they, they do, they do, uh, you know, swap notes. From <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. So I'm probably on some FBI, you know, list of of, of people that should be kept track of. <laughs> Anyways. Maybe in the old days. Now you're an ally. <laughs> so, you know, I read Saul Alinsky. I read, you know, Paulo Freire and, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. Leonardo Goff. All those guys, you know, all yeah. the liberation theologians, yeah. you know, those guys. And so I was, I was, I was tracking with a lot of that stuff. Uh, but over time, you know, I moved away from that stuff. I, I began to uh, identify more and more with 
what at that time was referred to as post-liberalism. Yeah. People like Harvaz and yeah, you know, uh, Lindbeck. Lindbeck, those guys who were yeah. coming out of that world. Yeah. And we're looking back at it, and I identify with, a, and I read a lot of that stuff, and, and so I was, I was, I was moving away from that, and and actually being introduced to paleoconservatism at that yeah. time. I had some friends, like Tom and, Odin, and yeah, yep, yeah. So I had friends who were introducing me to the writings of Russell Kirk, even, you know, mm. and I was reading Burke and people like that. Wow. So, uh, so it was, it was a. Now, in w one respect, I was, I was always a kind of. Um, Sort of half-hearted. Oh, we got we got. Uh -oh. it's, a, there's, it's beer time. What did you get? This is the uh, the double IPA, the diamond, whatever it is, the unicorn thing. How do you like it? It's okay. It's, it's good. It's, good. Yeah, yeah. I'll try. Yeah, I'll try that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, um, you know, I was never a new left kind of guy. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Yeah, you know, yeah. I was more sort of intrigued by uh, sort of the. The economic analysis, yeah. some of the cultural analysis that was coming out of the left, you know, reading people like uh, like Alinsky and so forth, and I knew I knew a lot of people who would, today would we would refer to as you know, in those days would would be referred to as the underclass. I don't think that is a term that's current today, but you know, I was I was hoping to to, to do things that would be helpful. But I was always, you know, firmly dedicated to the integrity of the family and firmly dedicated to, you know, I think just sort of home truths like men are men and women are women. And, you know, I, I had kind of a blue collar sort of uh, world that I had come out of and sort of the, the commonsensical sort of outlook of that world never left me. Mm -hmm. So. You know, I don't know if there's anybody like that anymore. <laughs> that was where I was. So I, I was moving away. And about that time where I was sort of getting into paleoconservatism, my friend David Trumbull, who was the, re the chairman of the Republican City Committee in Cambridge, which is a, was a thankless job, let me tell you. <laughs> he got a call from Harvey Cox at, at Harvard. And Harvey was looking for some religious conservatives to bring into the class so that his students could dissect them. <laughs> That's what inclusivism <laughs> used to mean. <laughs> now, Harvey is actually a pretty cool guy. Yeah, he was a He was a friend of uh, Richard John Newhouse. Uh, now, he was definitely left, but he was economic left. Yeah. You know, he was never into the new left stuff. Yeah. He, he actually rejected gay marriage and yeah. any of that kind of thing. He was a well-read lefty, yeah. which is rare to find anymore. Well, and also, he was financially secure. Ah. His book, Secular City, I don't know if yeah, you remember that I one, remember that sold that one. millions. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that book made him a millionaire. I have a copy. So yeah. I've contributed. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, so Harvey, Dr. Cox, invited my friend David Trumbull, who was an Anglican, high church <laughs> Anglican, and, and to come in and, and, and sort of bring in some conservative <laughs> evangelical types. And so David says, I don't know any. <laughs> so he calls me up and says, hey, Chris, you want to come with me? You want to be, like, okay. be the token conservative? <laughs> That's it. So, so I come in with David, and I'm with one other guy. I can't even remember the guy's name. And we come in, and there's like a class of 30 of these, of these pink triangle ro ra rainbow pin people. Yeah. You know the people I'm talking about. Yeah. And for, thir for these 30 people against three, this is like right out of the Bible, we, we uh, actually trounced them. Yeah. These are Harvard students. We trounced them for about an hour and a half. And Harvey actually was sort of like the moderator <laughs> of this whole thing. Now, there was, it was fun. It was because there was one guy in the class who was a conservative, and he was a black guy. And that was the thing I discovered at Harvard Divinity. The black guys were usually pretty solid, yeah. at least in those days. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because they had, again, sort of this common sense, blue collar sort of, sort of mindset. Anyway, so the guys, that I'm getting ahead of myself. But so anyway, after this whole thing, and uh, you know, it was a very positive thing. And we were going back and forth, arguing about different points. But after that, uh, Harvey, Harvey Cox actually came to me and said, I'd like you to be at Harvard Divinity School. Hmm. And the reason was is at that time, Dr. Cox was actually sort of handpicking evangelicals to come into the Divinity School because he was actually committed to a diverse institution. He, and, he was behind the attempt 
at Harvard Divinity School to bring in Mark Knoll. Huh. And Mark Knoll, the guy who had been at, I believe he taught at, at Wheaton and then went on to Notre Dame, mm -hmm. the, the, the evangelical historian. So, uh, listen, I can't remember the book that he wrote. Did he write The Scandal of the Evangelical yeah. Mind? Yeah. You know, so him. Yeah, that was one of his, yeah, it was one of his celebrated works. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they tried to, so Harvey was behind bringing Mark Knoll into Harvard, into that, yeah. and it was voted down. Uh. They said, we can't go that far. <laughs> and Knoll's work is just very, <laughs> just very well done history. That was it, that yeah. was it. But they didn't want him. And Har Harvey Cox was, a, was just astounded and disgusted yeah. by that. But because what, what Cox saw was that the sort of the future of Christianity in the United States was going to be the evangelical and Pentecostal wing of Christianity. This is back in the late 80s, early 90s. He actually wrote a book on Pentecostalism. Yeah. I remember I talked to him about it. Yeah. I, I went to him and said, uh, you know, Dr. Cox, uh, the Weekly Standard, remember the Weekly Standard yeah, when it was yeah. still being published, right? Yeah. I said, the Weekly Standard really liked your book on Pentecostalism. He looked at me and smiled and said, I'll never live it down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the kind of guy he was. Anyways, so he was behind my admission into the Divinity School at Harvard. And at that time I was being recruited by Eastern Nazarene College. I was, I was on faculty, but I was adjunct and they wanted to bring me on the president. Kent Hill wanted to bring me on full time. And he said, what I need you to do, Chris, is I need you to get your PhD. Yeah. So I said, okay, well, Cox wants me to do this. Hill wants me to do this. Hill was one of the one of the guys who who was the one of the authors of Evangelicals and Catholics together. Yeah, yep. I don't remember that. Yeah, I remember his, that's why I was wondering where his name sounded familiar. Yeah, it was Weigel, uh, Newhouse, uh, yeah. Colson, and Hill. That's right. Those were the guys. Yeah. yeah. So Hill was the guy who, was, who wanted me to come on faculty at, at the school, and uh, we were good friends. And and uh, mm. uh, but anyway. Uh, so that's how I came into, how I got into Harvard Divinity was the combination of Hill and Cox. So when I get there, you know, Harvard is a very different kind of place. I mean, it's yeah. old school yeah. in some ways and wacky liberal in yeah, others. Yeah, that's a, a lot of these you know institutions are, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. So like at, at Harvard Divinity, back when I was there in the late, in the late 90s anyway, the, the professor had to sign you into the class. The like, you know, like the, the uh, administration had no power, you know, sort of, you know, like the, what's, what's the name of the, uh, uh, the position that's in charge of like managing students' educational sort of development and sort of progress? I can't remember the name of the office. Um, like a program assistant? Advising? Yeah, that would be like an advisor. Uh, anyway, they, they had no power. So at Harvard, uh, at least in those days, the, yeah. the professor had to sign you into the class. Yeah. So like the first week, you're just sampling now, classes. Now the administrator has to sign the professor into the class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of truth in that. Like, so, like, so like at Harvard Divinity, you have all these, you had all these like celebrity, you know, celebrity professors, you know, like, you know, uh, Cornell West, you know, Harvey Cox, hmm. uh, Lane Padgels, you know, people like that. And so those people, you know, everybody wanted to study with them. Mm. So, like with Cox, you had to write a paper to get into his class. Mm. Remember Paper Chase? Right, yeah. You know, that, it was that kind of world. <laughs> you know, so like, I've got 10 slots. Prove to me why you can be in my class. Yeah, it's similar to that Oxford, kind of, yeah. that, kind of, that kind of situation. But anyway, so Cox liked me and got me in. And that was, but I remember the very first day at Harvard. You know, I, I went in, I, I did all the sort of the things that you need to do to, to sign up for classes. and. And so I, I, I'm walking through, you know how it is, you know, I get all the student clubs. They're all yeah. like lined up in the hall with their tables, you know, and they're all trying to recruit you. And so I'm walking down the hall and it has all these lefty stuff, you know, like Greenpeace, Sierra Club, all this kind of stuff. Then I get to the LGBT, you know, table. And then right beyond that is the evangelical table, you know, the evangelical <laughs> student club at, at Harvard Divinity School. So I, first I go to that one. I, I go there and there's like, there's, a, there's like this, like this piece of paper with five names. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay. So I sign up there, and then I walk over to the LGBT club. I'm not exaggerating. Three pages, front and back, with names. 
front and back. Mm. And I said to myself, I did my first graduate program in Kansas. I said to myself, Wiley, you're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> anyway, and then it kind of goes from there. But that was the world that I was immersed in. I lived in Cambridge. You know, I was kind of involved in that kind of stuff with the, with the left. Never the new left. The new left always kind of made me uneasy. Uh, but, I mean, this was before social media. Uh, this was back in the day when people still were trying to be kind of polite to each other and work with each other. You know, that's not what we see now. Anyway, so that was my experience. So, Tom, tell us a little bit about your experience as a conservative in a liberal, liberal academy. Yeah, and mine was kind of similar to yours in the sense that I did, you know, I kind of was, there's a lot of back and forth before I landed. <laughs> you know? right. A lot of flights around the, around the different buildings and the different ideologies. Um, I mean, I, I grew up in a conservative family, and my dad is a hardworking uh, blue-collar, um, and he's just one of the most impressive human beings I could ever say. He's just one of those kind of people that had intellect and practice that just manages to make work everything he puts his hands to and his mind to. And so I had that very strong foundation, my mother very similar, very, just very strong, value-oriented uh, person. Um, and so, and, and I grew up in a very, a very conservative Christian environment. But like a lot of people in the, um, well, I'm an, uh, I mean, I, I, was, I was born in the, you know, I grew by, my young years were the '70s, but my formative were the '80s. Um, but a lot of us, you know, we started to question everything around us, and and uh, so yeah, I went through my whole Marxist phase. Um, you know, it's, I think for me it started through the musical world, you know. It started with the, it, the kind of fascination with, with the, the hippies and, the, and then reading the different things they were reading. And, and so I started to yeah, be fascinated by revolutionary movements and thinkers and philosophers. And it, which was strange because here I am, you know, our whole school system was based on hiding from the threat of communists, yet in this weird way I was fascinated by them. Right. It was just kind of, you know, was, I don't, you know, there's a lot of psychological reasons behind that. Um, but I was a reader of these people too, and I was looking, I think, idealistically for, at that age, some kind of, you know, perfectly realized just world, you know. Um, and it, it's similar, I have, a, I have a wife from Colombia, and she said, you know, here she is, you know, someone who, who, you know, in those same years defending the guerrilla, <laughs> you know, it's just right. something you are attracted to. But when I went to university, and you, I started to see these kind of, um, I would call them plastic halo liberals, <laughs> right. um, in, in the sense that they just, they just had the, the cheapest form of arguments and the thinnest kind of... Um, zealotry, um, and, and yet they thought they were some kind of radical standing on the fringe of society ready, ready right. to underwrite. <laughs> now, I'll tell you who was the strongest, and they were the, actually probably the most instrumental in pushing me towards Christianity, were what I would consider the real um, hard thinkers of the day were the logical positivists. Huh. This is when, because and I, what I remember, I was, that's how far back I go. My university, my undergrad, when I took all my classes outside of the music department, um, was, uh, was logical positivism. Now, I want people to contrast this for the intellectuals out there. Now, you, you might want to uh, define logical, logical positivism. Logical positivism was a, a kind of very narrow-minded um, type of atheism, basically, that said uh, religious and, and God language, if it could not be empirically verifiable, was basically nonsense talk. Um, later, this this would have been this would have been something I think that that philosophers like Ludwig Wittgenstein actually kind of pulled the ground from under and influenced a lot of the religious world by saying no, there can be social worlds of meaning that give some kind of um, empirical ground to our, our God talk. That's that's a whole that's a different show. Um, but at this time, basically, if you're a believer, that is your opinion, that is your feeling. But that's not fact. It's not the world of fact. And right. so it was a very strong fact-value division that rode through this. Right. And it was very hard, yep. strong kind of scientism. Um, you know, I'll never forget my anthropology class. Ed Knight, probably the most fascinating human being I ever met. He pulls the, you know, the, the skull from the evolutionary chain. He goes, you know, creation, a belief. Evolution, a fact. You know, and he's so dramatic, you know, and by, you're, you're kind of playing you're like along cheering. You're yeah. like, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, this was that kind of environment. So, so, 
but, but the one thing I remember thinking to myself with all of that kind of hard kind of positivism was they're working very hard to negate and undermine and call basically intellectually um, naive the Christian worldview and vision. And I thought, well, if, it's, if it is such, why are you working so hard? That's right. Why not just ignore it? Why not ignore it? And, and, so, and it was actually through the music school where the arts and the humanities that in the literary departments, I was taking a lot of you know, literature. And actually, I was taking the Victorian literature class from a Yale professor who was actually use, reading all the literature that was around the age of unbelief and people starting to first lose belief for the first time. Yeah. And it was the same thing all over again. It was just this constant drumbeat. And I'm just thinking, I was thinking to myself, this is just, this is, this is too fabricated. Yeah. Um, and that kind of pushed me to reading philosophy much more rigorously. And it was really then that I discovered, above all, um, Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and, and it, because his name kept popping up of, oh, that, you know, we did away with that. But that was sort of the transitional figure to, to, in their, their world. If you could get rid of Thomas, you could get rid of Christianity. And then I started reading Thomas. I'm like, they never got rid of Thomas. That's they right. just skipped right over him. That's right. And uh, they didn't even address what he did. But anyway, this, you know, this is a long story here. Um, but, but one of the things that happened in that period is I, 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 as a musician, there was a little Christian bookstore within my university setting. Um, that was kind of the safe haven for Christians on campus. I wasn't really even a, a self-identified Christian, but I was sort of in disposition at the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just remember these kind of odd characters would always meet there, and they would even tell me which professors were Christian. You had to be secret then. You had to yeah, hide it. That's right. Um, the underground. The underground even then. It was, and, and it was fascinating. This African-American lady, Sandra Nuttall was her name, and she was, she was my advisor. And she, I was asking her theological questions, and I'll never forget this other lady came in, and she goes, she's a Christian too. She shut the door, and she, they started praying in there. These are my advisors. <laughs> right, right. But it was like you had to hide it, and they all right. knew who they were. It was this fascinating right. underground world. Yep. Um, and, and what year was this? Or this was in the 80s, so this okay. would have been between... So it goes all the way yeah, back, 88 just so our listeners know. 90. This is nothing new. Nothing new. Right. Yeah. And so, but anyway, they, they kind of, she, she had me start taking all the Christians on on our university, ah. which I ended up switching my major, double majoring in liberal arts, but I ended up having them. Um, and some of them were very interesting figures and they kind of pointed a lot of the way. Well, when I finished, I was like, you know what, I've got to pursue this more. Yeah. That's where I ended up at, a, at a, an interesting uh, Southern Baptist seminary, um, Southeastern Baptist, which had just went through Oh, yeah. The ousting of the left and the yeah. entrance of the, cons the uh, well, conservative here means people want to reclaim traditional faith. It doesn't mean strictly, maybe in some cases, but not strictly people who have an idealized, you know, right. you know social picture. Some do, but uh, old South kind of stuff. But right. on the whole, it was people returning the theological sources. And that's where I kind of sort of entered the kind of the, the, this, this new world of alternative thinking that just people in the, in the regular academy just couldn't stomach. Yep. They, didn't, they didn't think that deep. I, I read yep. real philosophers. But you see, that's the thing that I think that we need to help yeah. our, our listeners yeah. know is that some of this stuff is smoke and mirrors. Mm -hmm. The stuff that they're, that they're intimidated by, you know, uh, is actually evasive. I'm thinking about an outsider who's looking in yeah. and wonders, you know, what's going on in there? Are these people who are promulgating these these ideas, are they really are they really right? I mean, are they yeah. are they smarter than anybody everybody else, you know? Yeah. Uh, the experience that you had, I've had, yeah. you know, is that no, no, it's actually I think it's more fashion. Yeah. Intellectual fashion that we're doing with. And then what didn't help, and I did notice at the at the Southeastern Seminary at the time, is that they were a little overly zealous in their antithesis to anything within right. the university. And this is what kind of um, left, I think, a divide. And so I was kind of, I started to be kind of, my head kind of started to be, be kind of filled with this notion that you can't go back into that environment kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. Um, but God, it's one of these things God just did. He just brought me back into it anyway. Um, and I remember, it was similar to you, when I went over to visit Duke, because they had a pro the follow-up program, and there were some great, Howard Ross was there at yeah, the time, yeah. but these were people that were sort of on the cutting edge, and I would say, you know, if I'm going to pursue this, I need to study with the people who are actually writing the material, you know, not just reading about them, and these people were. Jeffrey Wainwright, who was, a, a, I mean, a, he was a, a very uh, conservative Methodist, um, a defender of historic 
orthodoxy, but on the other hand, he knew the field. He, mm. could, he could hold his own within it. So these were figures, and, and I remember similarly uh, meeting with them and them saying, you know, we want to have a better, you know, relationship with, South, you know, the Southeastern. So, you know, you guys, just, we see this as an act, you know, of grace and, and God. So, so it was an attractive thing for them to have some of us students want to come be a part of them. Great. Um, and so the one thing Duke did is it, 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 because it was in the heart of things and it still had a connection to the traditional, I mean, there, there were leftists and liberals, don't get me sure, wrong. Sure, But there were many that did not want to lose historic Christian identity and they were zealous for it. And in particular, it was, I think it was the classic liturgy that kept Duke from going liberal. Um, that's an interesting thought. Yeah. Many of our, our, our listeners would, would not be able to identify with that. Yeah. They would be more sort of like, well, the only way that anybody would want, you know, could, could, yeah. could manage to sort of resist these trends is by absolute fidelity to the Bible as the inerrant. Well, and interesting, and, and I think Hauerwas wrote a, a fascinating book that kind of undermined under, uh, that. He, he, it's a controversial book. He said, Taking the Bible Away from America. It's the title of it. But his point was it had become so domesticated by the liturgy of the culture that it wasn't placed within its worshipful context, which was always the historic worship of the Christian church. So this was their argument mm -hmm. against that kind of biblicism, that kind yeah, of, that, right. that read it as individualist pietism versus a community of people who across the history and time um, uh, shared, shared uh, belief in the Trinity and the Incarnation. And, and express that in a common form and language. And, you know, so whereas we have churches now want to get rid of Christianese, these people say, no, wait a minute. We want it we back. We want it back because this is, this is I remember our, I, I had, when I was yeah. on Cape Cod, I was, I had a, I, I was uh, when I was a pastor there, I had a, an assistant pastor who was like twice my age. And he was always like saying, oh, we shouldn't use words like sanctification <laughs> or whatever. Because people won't be able to, you know, won't know what we're talking about, and and so we need to find an, other ways of, you know, sort of addressing this uh, or these themes. Or we can just educate them as to what this word means. Yeah. That was my argument. Discipleship with was the historic <laughs> approach. It was. Right. Yeah. I That's mean, right. most people don't know what most Christians don't even know what homo usion means, right, right, <laughs> and why right. it was worth fighting about. Right. Um, but nevertheless, yeah, to get rid of it would it would would be to, to you know that little ending. Would, would be the difference between salvation and heresy. <laughs> so that was your experience at Duke. Then yeah. you went on to went Oxford. Went on to Oxford. And, and just to keep in mind, though, I don't want to, I mean, because Duke was a heart and rigorous and it had an academic institution and it had ties and was respected in all the other departments, the other departments still looked at it suspiciously in the, in the divinity school. And I remember Hauerwas saying, if you want to guarantee that your children become atheists, have them go through, through our normal institutions of education <laughs> and university. Yeah. And he said, there's coming a time where the theologian is going to be, have to be tied back to the church yes, rather than the institution and education of Christians too. Right. Very interesting. That's not just his sectarian no. tie. I think that's, he understood, he, he may have understood that point ahead of the game than a lot of evangelicals. Well, you know, he had a kind of an Aristotelian sort of point. Yeah. So yeah. like, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about it from the, in the framework of, of an Aquinas, yeah. then it's always the community mm -hmm. that the, the virtues are serving and yeah. So, and including the intellectual virtues. Yeah, 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 he was right. Um, so, but, but it was in this environment that I ended up uh, miraculously uh, ending up in Oxford University, and miraculously the Lady Margaret Professor was the leading evangelical voice in Britain, uh, John Webster, the late John Webster, who I both admire and miss. <laughs> yeah. um, but again, um, we were it's what he would call oddballs at the, in, the, in the institution. And we were very aware that amongst our theological world and the philosophical world, um, they respected us as academics. They didn't agree or think um, wise anything we said. But my hunch is that there has been a reversal from my, my, my talks to people that are still in Oxford. And um, now you have to hold back a lot of what you think. Mm. Um, you can be intellectually vigorous, but if it doesn't fit into the PC world, yep. and I know people, I'm not going to name their names, but they they, they're, you know, traditionalists and uh, uh, committed to the historic faith. And there's a lot of things they can't say, and there are a lot of things they're being pressured into doing um, because they're, they're fragile. 
That's right. And they don't want to. They don't want to lose their ministry. They don't want to lose their place in the institution. But they have to really be quiet because um, they're at a point where they're barely tolerated. Yep. Um, and it's coming. There's coming a day that if it doesn't change, they won't be. Right. Um, and this is, I think, a common thread. Um, I'll say this one, and I'll end, and we can kind of shift gears. But I do remember when I was there. I mean, all this postmodern talk and all this kind of extreme leftism, it was still out there. I mean, we sure. read all these people. Sure. But the thing is, is in the intellectual world, we didn't take it intellectually seriously. We thought no one really would. I mean, we tolerated it. We thought, okay, this is a fashion, a tread. I, I'll never forget this guy. Okay, let's read all our, our textbooks backwards to discover the biases. It's like, great. Okay, but you're still going to have to read them forward to understand what you didn't understand. I mean, it's just kind of... Um, but, the, you know, I just we didn't really think that people on the street were really going to take it seriously. Well, I think the big shocker to me is, is within the past six years of teaching, people in the streets actually believe this stuff. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And that's what's frightening. It's, it's, it's more, and it's a bit more a psychological thing. Yeah, and, definitely. And, and so, I mean, the way I would kind of equate it metaphorically is it, it's much more, much more the spirit of, of fanaticism. Intel, you know, it's not intellectual. It's a, it's a fanaticism, an ideological fanaticism that says if you don't square with this very limited range of, of politically correct um, viewpoints... Um, and trendy kind of fashions that this kind of, I don't know, I don't, intellectual elite somehow find compelling for whatever reason, um, then you're, you're going to be thrown to the guillotine. Yep, yep. Well, that's, that's the, the world yep. that you and I yep. kind of, kind of cut our teeth in. Yeah. Now we have Racer X. We have Racer X. Racer X to tell us kind of the situation on the ground today. Now, yeah. Now, Racer X is involved in a graduate program, and I'm not going to say any more about that. Sure. No one knows your discipline, Racer X. No one knows where you go to school. No one knows anything about you. Nothing. In fact, we're going we're gonna to mask your, your voice yeah. so that you, you actually sound like a robot or something. <laughs> So tell us a little bit about... You're an AI. This is AI. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about the situation on the ground today as a student. Yeah, so I'll, I'll first start with saying how I became a conservative. Uh, I was raised Christian. I, I fell away rather early, around fifth grade. And for three years, I lived my little sinful life from fifth grade to eighth grade. Those are, and those are challenging years. Well, that... What, what, the age, what did you say, 10 to 8, uh, 10 to... Twelve. Okay, well, see, that would have been 17 to, to 19 back when, you know, oh, I was around, yeah, so I think yeah, it's yeah. just shifted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, I became a Christian again, and prior to having my sort of intellectual and spiritual awakening, it's sort of these values, these Christian values that really, really shaped my conservative thought. And so, I had my intellectual awakening during my undergrad. And I'll prob I'll just say the field I'm in just because there's so many of us out there. Uh, I'm in philosophy, and so I picked up philosophy during my undergrad just because I wanted to really dive in and understand my faith in God more rigorously. It was more rigorous, this way of thinking, than anything I had been exposed to prior. So what's interesting is my undergrad experience, I was at a secular university, and it wasn't that bad. I actually, one of my professors, who's a great mentor, and I still speak to him today, was a, is a practicing homosexual, has a husband, partner, whatever you want to call it. Right. And I remember I wrote a paper for him using Thomas Aquinas' arguments, his natural, um, not natural family planning, his um, perverted faculty arguments, <laughs> to argue that um, the government ought not force Catholic institutions to give contraception because Catholics, you know, they're against contraception. And <coughs> Protestants <coughs> used to be. Anyway. And Protestants just, used to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, throw that out there. <laughs> um, I actually kind of lean towards that myself, but you know. Um, and those same arguments, though, are used to also argue against homosexual activity. And so he was fine with me writing that paper. He wasn't personally offended. He was. Okay with it. Yeah, we I remember liberals like that guy. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's <laughs> very great. He never treated me differently. Um, I had another professor in that same in that same department who's a very strict atheist, 
and I'm actually his, he, he signed one of his books and gave it to me as a gift, and he said, you're my favorite Christian student. <laughs> and so, it was a very cordial environment, it was really, it was really neat. But that was a while ago, and so now finally... So what was the time frame, dates? Dates. If I do that, people might guess my Oh, uh, okay, yeah, yeah. We, we won't go there, we won't go there. It was after when I was in. <laughs> <laughs> Sometime between 1985 and 2020. Exactly. <laughs> and so now, so that was a while ago, now finding myself in a doctoral program, again at a secular university, things are completely flipped. It's, it's insane. I mean, the fact that I have to be on here, hide my name, hide my voice, the, and the reason I did that is because I was originally going to appear and um, have my name and everything published, but I was worried because there were other topics on the podcast. You spoke about transgenderism. These that I share with you all, but even though I'm talking about a different topic, the fact that I'm appearing on a podcast that hosts those topics, mm -hmm. I'm going to catch flack. Uh, they could call my uh, university. They can call what's called the climate committee. I'm not. I'm not sure. If Hold on. Fill us in on the, the so climate committee. We're not yes. talking. We're not talking about. <laughs> we're not talking about climate change. Yeah. We're yeah. talking about no. the ethos. But that, there is probably a committee for that too. But <laughs> we, we'll, we'll get to that. In another so day. I should explain that. That's, that's actually really important. So you can kind of see also what's going on in the academy. So we have these committees called climate committees where they put a couple of the professors in charge of sort of gauging the department, making sure it's um, safe, hospitable to people with different point of views, making sure it's not transphobic, making sure it's not homophobic, or even against religion as well. So that's a good thing. Except if your religion is homophobic or transphobic. Right, right. <laughs> and then you get, you get the, the acts. But just kind of making sure everything's okay, there's no sexual harassment. So think of it as sort of the HR department of the academic department. <coughs> and so I could, if people find out that say, I think transgenderism is absurd logically, that could be taken as hate speech. They can call the climate committee, I can get pulled in and I can be kicked out of my doctoral program. And then there goes my degree, and there goes my job, and there goes supporting my wife and my um, soon-to-be present child. So, so which, which he's going to have at least ten of anyway. Yes. But we won't yes. tell. I won't say more than that. Because you're in one of those crazy churches with big families. Yeah. So. And <laughs> at least at least ten. <laughs> See, here's the, here's the great thing. Here's the great thing about that point. The left is against purpose. We're four birds, so right. with, over time, we're going to overtake them. So that's Good, it. there you go. That's that's right. Right. I think yeah. we have to get back to that. Yeah, yeah. 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 that's a whole other yeah. thing. But. <laughs> so that's just an a picture of what's kind of going on. Um, so an example of sort of how bad things are in our in philosophy, at least, uh, last year or the year before, there was this huge sort of scandal. There's, I'm not sure if you've heard the Hypatia debacle with the feminist journal. No, I did not. Okay. So there's this feminist philosophy journal called Hypatia. And there was this one feminist philosopher who, she's pro-transgenderism, so she's, she's good with it. But she wrote a paper and submitted it and got it accepted to that journal, which basically argued and said this, hey, the sorts of arguments that we use to support transgenderism you can analogously use them to also support transracialism. I remember it now. It's yeah, coming yes. back to me. It's coming back to me. Yeah. This is beautiful. Right. <laughs> and strangely, I think I came up with something very right. similar. I'm just, a, yeah. <laughs> didn't Steve Martin right. say I was born a poor black child? <laughs> and right. We would laugh about that back in the day. But I thought, with, but similarly, I remember Rachel Dolezal. Everyone laughed at her. She was ahead of her day, game. Yeah, She's like, I look, her. if you're gonna do that, if yeah. you're gonna do that with other things, why are you gonna call her a problem and fire her from her NAACP job? Right. Because right. she fits right into right. the the arguments. Right. Right. Um, and her arguments are the same arguments exactly. people would make for transgender. Exactly. Yeah. The idea being, if you're sort of basing your gender identity on how you feel, well, if I honestly feel that I'm a black man from the south. Why can I be a black man from the South? 
even though I'm a white woman from New Jersey. And see, this this and show conservatives right. use that sort of argument as sort of a reductio, meaning to show, hey, this is this transgenderism stuff is absurd. And what you get at that point, yeah. you're a racist. Yeah, exactly. But no, they don't want you to make that move. So what ended up happening with this philosopher? So she was saying, hey, look, transgenderism is great, but look, these arguments also support transracialism, so we should also be in support of transracialism. It's great. So she accepted the, the sort of implications. The left feminists lost their minds. They said, no, this is disrespectful. This is racist. This is bigoted. They ended up pressuring their journal. Once you get a, a paper published, it's kind of set in stone. It's very hard to get to that kind of thing redacted. Yeah. And it's a whole fiasco. Eventually, the journal acquiesced, gave in, caved in cowardly, and they pulled back the I'm all set for now. Yeah. It's sort of like, uh, you know, like when Moses has his name, you know, obliterated from every monument in Egypt. <laughs> you know, how, how do you do that? You know, it's a pretty big project. But, you know, it's sort, sort of, you know, how do you get there? There's, I remember, you know, you know, when I was uh, at, at Harvard Divinity School making arguments, you know, with, you know, that I would present to feminists or lesbians or whatever, saying, you know, the arguments that you're making in which uh, you undermine, you know, identity that is rooted in biology mm -hmm. will lead to this and this and this, meaning transgenderism and, and, yeah. and so forth. And they would just all just dismiss me as like, ah, that's just so absurd. No one will ever do that. Yeah. <laughs> and here we are. Here it's we are. It's all, all come to pass. Well, this is, I, I went to, I mean, my VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University was my undergrad. It was a very, it's a cosmopolitan, it's a big name art school, music school, very humanities oriented. People come from all over the world, very liberal in those days. But I'll forget, I was taking a literature, American literature class, and the professor was just constantly on this roll about, you know, be, and this is, you know, uh, late 80s, early 90s, pro-gay, pro-this, pro-this. Well, anyway, it was Gay Shock Week. And one of the students so happened to, in the classroom, we didn't know, um, but he, he was part of this. And so they waited till about 20 minutes into the normal class, and they kicked the door open, and he comes in dressed fully as a woman and sits up front and positions in himself in a way that is unpleasant for the professor. And that professor who defended this all term long canceled class that day. Ah, there you go. And it's again, o that's okay when it affects those people. people. And, and he fills everyone's head it, with it all the time. And yet, finally, it entered his classroom. He didn't know how to handle it. Do you remember, you remember the Alfred Hitchcock film Rope? Yeah. yeah have you ever seen Rope? I hadn't. Because it's a, it's a, it's all about this. So, really? so, 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 what you have in rope is you have. Don't it's actually. No, no, I got, I got, I got to tell you the story. I got to tell you. Uh, all these people in 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 podcast land are saying no, no racer X. <laughs> so here, here's how here's how the story goes. So Jimmy Stewart plays a philosophy professor. <laughs> Jimmy yeah. Stewart plays a philosophy professor who's a Nietzsche. He's into Nietzsche. <laughs> yeah. And That's so good. his students <laughs> decide that uh, what they need to do is they, need, they, they really need to experience what it's like to kill someone. Mm -hmm. They just feel like it would make them feel more alive <laughs> to kill somebody. <laughs> so what they do is they kill somebody, they strangle this person. The very, it's how the film be, actually begins with the strangulation of someone. And then they take this guy, it was a fellow student of theirs, they're in, they're in university, they're a fellow student, they put him in a, a, a box, you know, like an old steamer trunk, and then they leave it in the living room, and then they invite his parents over and serve them dinner on the trunk. Oh, man. So they're eating over their dead son's body. Now, the rest of the film is all about how Jimmy Stewart, this, this uh, student of Nietzsche, has a change of heart as he discovers that his students have killed one of his other students. And so what you have is this sort of interesting sort of 
dynamic that yeah. you just described. Yeah. You know, now now it all comes home. Okay, I've been <laughs> teaching these guys. I never thought they would take me seriously. Well, it was like what I, that's what we, I was saying with, with this stuff. We talked about it, but we kind of said, okay, you know, we'll go out and have a pint afterwards, not these students take it to the streets and home. Right. You right. know? Right. And that's the thing. I mean, there, there is a sense in which in, in the, the old intellectual world, if I could call it that, um, you were allowed to pursue things to any end as long as they stayed in the roadmap of, of, of the intellect. You had to be very cautious before you, you... And this is why a lot of academics live very normal... Not all. I mean, there are plenty of that don't. But there are those that live very normal lives otherwise, yet their, their ideas and their books are all, all over the place. Um, and, and there are plenty of them. There are plenty of the others, too, you know. 85-year-old yeah, yeah. man walking around with the, you know, 19-year-old, you know, date in the park kind of stuff, <laughs> which is, while it's on my mind, so. Yeah, yeah, and in the world of theology, there are more of those than we'd get into some of the famous guys. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's were, right. That's who right. were maybe needed a visit from the climate committee. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> who, who would have known the theology department and Harvey Weinstein had a lot in common? <laughs> um, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, but, but you weren't censored on one end. Um, you, I mean, I, I think to be a conservative Christian in a lot of these schools, is you would have had to have done your homework. That would have been it. But you would have been respected if you could carry your, your rational argument and, and, and support it. Now it's not like that. Yeah. Because rational argument is, is basically just a rhetorical, um, a rhetorical frame for, for some other agenda. It's a trick. That's right. It's a trick. And so it doesn't matter how compelling as a conservative you are, if you go in there and, and can basically pull, pull the rug from everyone else and then show a compelling alternative, they'll just, they'll just read it as a, a, a psychological and rhetorical presentation geared towards um, uh, basically protecting a privilege and, and enforcing a rational dominance. Well, you know, here's something I think that would be good for us to explore a little bit, you know, as we kind of move into the last phase of, the, of our time together. Well, I think many, uh, many of our listeners don't know how the academy really works at the highest levels. Yeah. Their experiences of the academy, their experience of the academy is as a sort of underclassman. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, where everything is sort of like level, yeah. ideally, and that everybody's sort of treated fairly according to certain criteria yeah. that are agreed upon or whatever. But it's, it's almost kind of mechanical. It's almost like, okay, you have all these people who are pursuing their course of study to get a bachelor's or an associate's degree, what have you. They don't understand that, that when you matriculate into, say, a master's program, a, a sort of set of criteria that are not objective suddenly come into play. And it's really true at the PhD level. So like when you get to the PhD level, it's all about the, the masters of the academy sort of promulgating or reproducing themselves. It's all about that. So like I remember when I was at Harvard and I was working with one of my, one of my uh, guys there and, I, and, and we were walking across Harvard Yard and we were just talking about things and I could see that he was, he was uh, evaluating me. <laughs> And he was, he was probing my belief system. And uh, over the course of, the, the, of our walk, he, what he was really after is, did I really believe that Jesus really indeed rose from the dead? That was the thing. That was what he was he after. Was perplexed. That's right. And when it became clear that I really did believe that, yeah. I had no future with him. You know how this is, because yeah. you got to have your sponsors. Yeah, you got to have your people who are, you know, like with you at yeah. Oxford, you had a guy that yeah. you could trust. Thank God. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> but I don't think that people understand that, who are looking at it from the outside, and they're and they're wondering how is it that that the academy has become sort of this this uh, citadel of, ins of, of 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 craziness. Yeah. Well, one of the things that that contributes to that is the way the system works. I'm not, I'm not trying to change the system, I'm just describing it. Yeah. So, like, like if we, we talk about, like, Robert P. George, who's a really solid guy at Princeton, yeah. what does he do? He does the exact same thing, yeah. but he's got conservatives. Yeah. So he's always looking for people who are, 
Yeah. Yeah. People who see the world the way he does and just want to refine and develop their yeah. abilities, their talents, their, their scholarships. Of them. So that's how it works. It does work. That. I mean, John Webster, I remember, he would not, he had not taken, prior to, to becoming a student there, he took four of us, he had not taken a student for, for doctoral work in eight years. Wow. See, that's it. That's it. He was picky. You ha and, 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 and I get it. I mean, I get it. You like breeds like. I mean, it's not that he wouldn't have respected or anything else, but he wanted people to reduplicate a lot of where his convictions were. He spent all his life doing it. And I, I can respect that in sure. someone else. But the thing is, is, is what happens is for, con for people conservative or traditionalist, Christian traditionalists, um, they're so few and far between. And so therefore, you're so, it's so rare to find someone that you have to hide almost. I'll give you, I'll give you, a, I'll give you a rarity. Um, and, and he wasn't a, a traditionalist in the fullest sense. He was very in, 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 uh, indebted to some of the neo-orthodox uh, thought, but uh, Tom Torrance from um, Scotland. But he was adamant about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as a doctoral student under Karl Barth, he pressed Barth and pressed Barth because you had the Boltmans of the day and, yeah. and those figures that, that, that really didn't hold to that. And finally, Barth said, you know what, I'm not holding back on that issue in the institution. And you're talking years ago where the pressure was. Yes. And Barth finally reached over. Tom Torrance was sitting next to him and, and they were talking about the issue of the resurrection and Barth kind of grabbed him by the neck and said, bodily resurrection. <laughs> <laughs> and so, there you go, so there you go. That's, that's, that's what we're talking that's about. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So, so Racer X, yeah. you know, so what we want to do is we want to support you because we think that what we need is more of you. You know, what we need is, are, are people like you. Now, I think that this is sort of the, we've, we actually, I think, find ourselves in the position that the left found themselves in. Maybe back at, we have to go way back, back to like the 30s and 40s. Interesting. Yeah. You know, I'm, I don't even think the 60s are far enough back. That's right. I think Because I think at that point they had already secured their, sort of their beachhead. Yeah. I think you have to go back to the 30s mm -hmm. or so, and it was at that time that you had liberals in the, in the sort of progressivist, Marxist sense that we're talking mm -hmm. about, laying low, yeah. kind of keeping their opinions to themselves, waiting for the day that they had tenure, that they could come out. They were in the underground. They were the underground. And they, they didn't have podcasts then, but if they did, they wouldn't be saying where they're from. <laughs> that's right, that's right, that's right. Yeah. I, I had a very interesting conversation, too, with uh, Aaron Wren about this sort of thing about the other day, and, and Aaron said, one of the problems with conservatives is uh, we don't learn from the left. Yeah. And he wasn't talking about getting nasty. What he was talking about was actually, with the left, if you lost your job because you had taken a stand for the cause, you, they would find you a job. Yes. Think about that. Yes. Like Robert Lopez, yep. Yep. our friend Robert Lopez, who just got canned yep. recently at, at a conservative Baptist seminary after yep. he had given up his tenured position in the University of California yep. because he had taken a stand yep. against the homosexual agenda. Yep. Here was a guy who had been initiated into the homosexual lifestyle while he was a doctoral student at Yale and he had two lesbian mothers. In other words, his pedigree was yeah. perfect. He was like the Apostle Paul. I know yeah. all about that world. Yeah. 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 I know all about that world. Yeah. And I'm here to tell you that it's sick. Yeah. And, I'm, and I left it. Yeah. A conservative yeah. Christian institution yeah. has thrown him out. Yep. Yeah. Well, this is, this is I, I think that conversation is great because I think this is really where we are. Christians are either going to put their, you know, their money where their confession is, or they're not. I think that it's long overdue. I mean, I've sensed it as a theologian, how little actual support. I mean, most churches would rather spill funds into the latest popular project <laughs> and smoke and light show and starve to death the very intellectual substance of the faith, which is the only thing that's going to actually. And I'm not, I'm not talking mere intellectualism. I'm talking like a holistic Christian vision. Um, it's the only way that people are going to be able to engage with what is coming. These people don't even have an antenna. And I'm watching people from those churches, especially people in the congregational staff, sit here and basically spill the cultural confession 
and re try challenging Christian culture, but from these leftist positions, they have no clue that it's even leftism that they've absorbed. I mean, this yeah. is honestly why I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah. This is why I'm in academia. I mean, now that I have a baby on the way, <laughs> money's starting. I'm like, okay, I, I want to provide for my family. And I get the temptations of like, I should just leave, forget this, it's BS. I'm gonna go get a job in IT and make get out while you can, bro. Right? <laughs> get out right. while you can. But you see, but we know yeah. that it's infiltrating IT. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. that even in that world, you you know, That's right. I, all these STEM people who think that this stuff doesn't apply yeah. to them are, it does. Google. Yep. We've seen what's yeah. going on there. But the reason I do what I do is because I know that we need a certain of Christians in there. We cannot give them the academy because it continues to influence students. Just this semester, my teaching, I've seen how my presence as a conservative Christian impacted so many of the students. Yep. And and I will say, and I, I understand the sociology of knowledge and the fact that material conditions shape the way we read reality and our beliefs that mimic the kind of social construction there. I get that. Sure. But on the other hand, it, it, it is Aquinas got that too. That's right. And it's but it's dialectic <laughs> in the sense that so 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 do the social conditions mimic the idea side side of things that go into it. And I think one thing that that uh, uh, Christians um, of our stamp have not lost is the significance of conforming all truth to the knowledge of God in Christ. And both on, and, and, and I think this is one of the awakenings I hope is happening in the reformed We need Protestant a new woke. We do, we, the new woke <laughs> is the return to, and, and again, it shouldn't be, the, it shouldn't be uh, the separation of theology and philosophy because I've always, as, as a Thomist, I've never seen these things as a, a reformed Thomist. Uh, I, I've never seen these things as uh, conflictual. I've never, well, yeah. even when I read certain Thomists who, who yeah. find it, you know, a Christian philosopher versus a Christian theologian, I'm like, you, you just really are working with some strange, <laughs> some strange categories that even Thomas, much less anyone else. And, um, sure. A thinking person and a thinking and a person. Thinking person. person. <laughs> but, but, I, but I value about what you say is this is something that I don't, this is maybe a saving grace that has come out of certain lines of, of the evangelical world. It hasn't lost the fact that we still need to tap the the um, theological and philosophical metaphysical assumptions tied to to the practice and the sociology yes yeah. we have to change also other uh, we, the, you know this is why like Howard Wass's emphasis on the practice and and the formative communities and the virtue those are very central you you have to we have to work on the social conditions to right. support the beliefs in, in discipleship. That's right. why discipleship's holistic. But on the other hand, there is the theological domain that doesn't need to be read as though it's, it's, it's merely an epiphenomena of the sociological, but it's actually part of that which gives form to the right sociology. That makes sense. Yeah, and, and it does. We we need to wrap up. We're, we're actually getting a little long here, and I know and I know Racer X has to leave soon. Yeah, <laughs> but we're not going to say where he's going. <laughs> but anyway, kind of, kind of to wrap up. Uh, anything that uh, you know we want to say as we close. Here's my thought. My thought is, I made an I made a reference to the 1930s. I think that was the critical stage in terms of the academy's shift to the left, and I think it. And, 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 and I think if uh, I had the time, you know, we got Machen, you know, that oh, was, yeah, that was yeah. his time. Yeah. So he could see it coming in those yeah. days. Uh, you know, uh, Chesterton, they, there were a lot yeah. of people who could see what was coming. And there was a critical sort of shift in emphasis that, and then you could say that Lewis even with the abolition of man is yeah. sort of a latecomer sort of reflecting yeah. on something that had already occurred. Yeah. So even that when abolition of man was published, it yeah. was already too late, yeah. even in his own mind. Yeah, you yeah. Know? So like when he goes to finally gets, you know, yeah. his position at Cambridge, you know, he presents himself as a dinosaur for dissection. You know, you, yeah. you know I'm, I'm a person who doesn't exist anymore. I'm in the old Western man. You yeah. Know? Get it while you can. And he, and he felt sometimes uh, that by coming to it that late, he felt, felt a little bit out of his league. I know his debates with, was it Anscombe? Who, who was the... Yeah, the, but yeah, she, yeah, she was kind of bringing some things to the surface that were weaknesses in his argument. That's right. What, yeah. I'm, what I'm getting at is more like sort of the, the, the phenomenon within the academy. Yeah. So like yeah. when he writes, 
you know, uh, that hideous string. Yeah. It's about a university yeah, that's yeah. already gone over to the other side. Mm -hmm. Now, it's an earlier form of the other mm -hmm. side, more of a po positivist kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. But uh, this is all kind of working together. I think positivism yeah. and the new left yeah. kind well, of... It set the stage for it, yes. Yeah, that's right. So my point is, the larger point is, is that our project will not be complete in our lifetimes. Yeah. And that's a problem for most evangelicals because yeah. most evangelicals can't think past next week. Yeah. You know, their idea of long-range planning is is three yeah. months from now. Yeah. And so they do everything in sort of this short-term sort of outlook and they don't have any sense. They, they don't plant trees for the next generation. That's right, yeah. Um, they uproot them. Yeah. And. What we need to have is a sense that, okay, here we are, 90 years later, I'm absolutely serious about yeah. this. The 30s were the critical decade. Yeah. 90 years later, this is where we are. The cure is gonna take at least 90 years. Yeah. The academy, the fight for the academy is not gonna be won in our lifetime. Yeah. So what does that mean? We need more guys like you for the long haul racer X. The long haul. So. You're a younger man. I'm not going to say how old. <laughs> younger than me. That's right. 45 <laughs> is, is a young man from my perspective. Yeah. <laughs> but, but what we have is we have, uh, we need, you're not going to see the end of this. I'm definitely not going to see the end of this. Yeah. I'm going to be dead long before the change. And happily, I'm not going to see, you know, because <laughs> I'll see the end from a different perspective. <laughs> That's right, from heaven. That's right, from That's eternity. Right. Eternity. But, <laughs> so, but what that means is we got to have that kind of long-term perspective, and how do we inculcate that? We're not, in, we're not doing it yet. Yeah. Anything else you want to add, Race Rex? I can't think of anything that will not take us over time. I have so <laughs> many things going through my mind right now. Well, maybe we can have you back. Yeah, yeah. that would be great. Yeah. yeah. Anything else, Tom? Um, I, I would say I, I think in the in the ref, in the Protestant world, we're kind of finally learning from what happened similarly. I think in the, in the Catholic world is it, with the resourcement. Um, this return to source is return to the substance yes. of our faith and and, and the sources. Um, and, and rather than being um, running with the trend in the modern world um, and the postmodern world, uh, seeing, seeing these things and positioning them from, from their own riches. And we've been on to this over and over again. But I think, that's, uh, I think that's really kind of my final thought is that we don't have to be intimidated. Um, one of the things I've learned in being in high-end academics is that uh, they don't have much to work with. They just work with it very efficiently. Yeah. Anyway, let's wrap it up. It's, uh, you know, the Christmas season. This is Advent. Next week is Christmas. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, uh, by the time you get this or uh, listen to this, it, Christmas may be upon you. You may be actually listening to this on Christmas Day. So Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. That poli politically incorrect statement. That's right. Yeah, here, anyway, but thanks a lot for listening to the podcast today, and bye-bye. Bye-bye.